Welcome back to Curiosity Bites. I'm here with the author of The Overview Effect and many other books, Mr. Frank White. And we're going to get into back into another session with Frank in a moment. But before we do, I want you to remind you that this episode of the show is brought to you by MagCast. Imagine having your own industry magazine. What would that do for your authority? Whether you're a coach, a content expert, or an emerging brand, it's hard to stand out from the crowd. So what if you had a proven way to increase both your perceived authority and your professional status in the eyes of your market, and you were able to do it all at once? Well, a way to go from being invisible to getting meetings with absolutely anyone is to, is to have your own magazine. To find out more, go to magcast.co. That's M-A-G-C-A-S-T dot C-O. Where first-time publishers create thriving magazine businesses. As I said, that's magcast.co. Okay, let's continue our conversation with author and uh, psychological philosophical explorer, Mr. Frank White. Welcome back, Frank. Welcome, everybody else. So glad to continue this conversation. Um, I wanted to, at the end of the last episode, I talked about how we want to talk about the release of the new. Uh, from uh, the, the uh, what, what is the act, the Secrets Act or the Public Information Act or whatever it's called, I can't remember, um, that Donald Trump, when he was actually running, said he was going to release some of this material about the UFOs and all the rest of it and what pilots say. Um, I think there's one thing about being a pilot inside of our atmosphere and seeing unidentified flying objects. Uh, in your conversations with astronauts, did UFOs come up? UFOs really haven't come up uh, very often at all, but I don't think that's because they wouldn't want to talk about it as much as I wasn't focused on that. Right. Uh, however, uh, you know, you definitely, if you look at the history of the space program, there have definitely been sightings of right. explained objects that have occurred on the space shuttle and on the International Space Station. And I think that the best way to approach that is to look at the term UFO, mm -hmm. unidentified flying object. Mm -hmm. That's what is being seen. And if you use that term, it doesn't imply anything about who they are, what they are, where they come from. Uh, one of the problems I think we have with UFOs right now is that there's this conflation of UFO with extraterrestrial uh, beings. Sure. You know, in the sense of, I've had people say, do you believe in UFOs? And what they're really saying is, do you believe UFOs are extraterrestrial spacecraft? Sure you know, extraterrestrial beings in them. But, you know, right now, it's, it's interesting. Um, the International Space Station is constantly uh, videotaping from the ISS. And yeah. if your viewers don't know it, you can go online and you can look as if you're on the ISS. You can see the Earth from a distance. But every couple of weeks, somebody reports that that camera caught a UFO sure. and uh, and so and and 
in the strictest definition of the term, that's what it is. Uh, it's a U.S. Uh, something. Uh, I mean, I think you know, uh, if you look at all the movies, you know, the, uh, um, the unifying, the unifying force of, of tribes is war, and so if we are threatened by. Uh, some otherworldly force, some extraterrestrial being, maybe we could actually come together and right. forget our own fricking borders. Um, and I think that, you know, there's something incredibly enticing about an extraterrestrial um, life force that comes here, um, hopefully in a friendly manner. Um, and I'd love to know your, your, just your opinion on this, but for me, I think it's incredibly uh, arrogant to think in this vast universe of our universe, not the universe, um, that we are the only intelligent life force. I think that, personally, I think, it's my opinion, I personally think that's arrogant. I think that it, there's, there's got to be more. I mean, we've found planets, uh, was it Kevlar? No, not Kevlar. Uh, Kev Kepler. Yeah, Kepler, Kepler. yeah, thank you, Kepler, um, which is Earth-like, and there are other um, seemingly Goldilocks planets. Um, do you think that, 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 do you believe there's life on other planets, meaning extraterrestrial life? I think there probably is. The laws of averages, the law of averages is such that there are so many uh, stars in the universe, uh, in so many galaxies, so many stars in so many galaxies, so many galaxies in the universe mm -hmm. that, um, and, and the possibility of life as we know it arising on one of those planets is pretty high. Yes. Pretty high. But one of the things that I think we have to keep in mind is that to go from life like ourselves, to intelligent life like ourselves, to an advanced technological civilization that would be like ourselves or more advanced, a lot of things have to fall into place. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's one issue in terms of ever really contacting these others who are like ourselves. So the, the, the numbers of intelligent life forms that create technological civilizations could be a lot lower than we think. Mm -hmm. The other challenge, go ahead. No, no, it's okay, go ahead. The yes. other challenge, and, and this is something, I actually wrote a book about this in 1990, and I think I missed in that book a very important point. That other civilization has to be awfully close to us in space and time to have meaningful communication. And I'm talking now about communication, not spacecraft coming here. Yeah, if you think about, uh, let's say there's a star that is a thousand light years away yeah and around that star there is a planet that's like the earth enough that 
there's a civilization not unlike ours, mm-hmm. right? So that that happens, and they send us a signal. Mm-hmm. It's going to take a thousand years to get here, right? So when we get it, it says hello, how you doing? <laughs> and that civilization has now evolved another thousand years, right? So when we respond, it'll be another thousand years before they get it. Mm -hmm. We also have to imagine that at the point they sent the signal, they're roughly at the same point we are for us to have any meaningful communication. And so when we think about very distant planets, they need to be right at the, even if they are at the right level of evolution, the communication is going to be really hard. So you have to imagine they're close Mm -hmm. and that they are at, you'd have to imagine they've been evolving for the same period of time for there to be meaningful communication. So the challenge for me is more, not whether they're there, but how can we really communicate with them? Uh, Let let me push back a little bit on that. That's Uh, a hard question to answer. Yeah, I'm sure. And and it's an opinion answer. I understand that. Um, But to push back a little bit about that, if you look at uh, many of the things in sci-fi that have become science fact, science fiction has become science fact, many of the things that were impossible are becoming more possible. Um, As I said, the things that were mystical and mythological are becoming real. Um, And um, if you look at even uh, the, the theories and research of people like uh, French researcher Jacques Vallée back in the day and his stuff, um, you know, we talk about interdimensional travel, you know, so the distance doesn't matter. Mm. Um, you know, using wormholes from sci-fi, you know, distance doesn't matter. Uh, t- you know, the, the uh, 10 light years away is 10,000 years away, but it's not, you know, if you're traveling in that way. Uh, if we're traveling interdimensionally, we're not bound by the normal laws of space-time travel. So um, I, I think part of the, 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 the trap is that we see, I mean, I say this to people uh, at a very human level, is that we see people through the lenses we have, meaning, you know, we use language like, well, that's common sense. No, that's common sense to you. Well, they should know this. No, you know this. Doesn't mean they should know this. And I think that that's part of our bias in the world. Or mm-hmm. Obviously, our bias in the universe is that we're looking at um, some extraterrestrial life force as being like us. There's nothing to say it has to be like us at all. It may have evolved in a completely different path. And right. it may have evolved in a way that is technologically far advanced of us. And when I bring it back to that, then I go, well, you know, look at the level of arrogance we have that we say, well, we're the most intelligent beings on the planet. No, that's not true. That's what we understand, but it's not true. We know that 
Uh, dolphins and whales have very complex communications. We know, you know, animals didn't feel anything. It didn't matter that we killed them. Well, now we know it does matter. And we do know that elephants cry. And we do know that cows cry when you take their calves away from them. You know, we, we beginning to understand this, again, this earthling mentality rather than, than a human mentality, but more as an earthling. And, the, you know, it doesn't really matter because we're better, we're higher. And, and I, so I think that we tend to transpose that universally and say, well, if there's an advanced civilization out there, then they probably look like us and they think like us and therefore they're likely to want a war with us. But maybe they don't give a crap about war. Maybe they're something else altogether. Maybe they're not even uh, in the physical carbon form we're in. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's very interesting to me for us, because it to me is another version of the overview effect. It's like, let's get beyond ourselves, beyond our own egoic concepts of reality, or for that matter, evolution and even consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, um, one of the ideas that's been percolating in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence community is this idea, you know, in the artificial intelligence world, people are anticipating a singularity, right. point at which artificial intelligence surpasses human intelligence and becomes essentially the dominant life form on Earth. Um, it's also been uh, suggested that a super intelligence like that wouldn't stick around on planet Earth but would essentially... I don't know, they'll bugger up. Yeah, <laughs> because, you guys are whacked. <laughs> because it would, you know, it really want unlimited energy to be available to it. Mm. Uh, and why stay on Earth for that? So one of the ideas that's been proposed as to why humans haven't heard from extraterrestrials uh, in the 50 or 60 years we've been looking for them is that they've evolved and they are now, you know, no longer organic. Mm -hmm. And they, and I think you implied this, they're also totally uninterested in human beings. Exactly. <laughs> and that, that kind of goes back to the level of evolution in the sense of, yeah, um, what would they learn from us? What would they want to know? Um, you know, and another another uh, theory, I'm sure you've heard of the ancient astronaut theory. Another theory is, yeah, they've been coming here forever and interfering with life on Earth and guiding us and changing our direction. And, um, you know, they are the gods of, of mythical, of the mythical past. All of these things are possible, again, You've used the word logic a lot, Dove. I think you have to go back to what makes sense logically and, you know, what, what really is the best explanation for these mysteries. When I look at things like the Sumerian texts yeah. uh, uh, and look at um, the theory of uh, Planet X, Nibiru, and, and all those kinds of things, and look at those Sumerian texts, and what appears to be 
appears. I'm not saying it's true. I don't know. Appears to be uh, diagrams that are 5,000 plus years old, not 5,000, but more than 5,000 years old. Uh, diagrams of the DNA helix, you know, and what appears to be astronauts um, on those texts and even on ancient Egyptian texts, which are much younger, you know, uh, look at the Mayan stuff and all those things. I mean, there is a lot of things. I, for me, what I love about all those things is not the wacky doodleness of them. And that's, that's very entertaining and interesting. But what I love about them is they make us question our own arrogance. And I love that. I love that it makes us stop and stop thinking that we're all that in a bag of chips. When in truth, you know, we might be the ants of the universe. (laughs) Really scrambling around for our next collective feed and, and attacking another colony, really, rather than understanding the complexity. When you worked with Asimov, I mean, just talk to us a little bit about that, because, I mean, you you co-wrote with a legend, right? I mean, (laughs) what was that like for you? Uh, How did you meet him? Tell us a little bit of that story. Yeah, so, of course, he was a hero of mine. Um, Sure. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that the first science fiction book I ever read, he wrote, and certainly I read everything I could. I mean, sure. I think he holds the Guinness Book of Records for books written, so I can't say I've written. I've read all of them, but I read a lot of them. And the way it came up was that um, uh, I was working on the overview effect, finishing up that book, and I uh, ended up getting in touch with a couple of young guys from a, a company called Walker, Walker and Company, and they had both been at Harvard, as I had been, and we had that in common, and they were interested in the overview effect, and they eventually commissioned me to write a book called The SETI Factor. Mm -hmm. That was about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Along the way, they said, oh, you know, uh, Isaac Asimov is a good friend of Mr. Walker, and we, uh, we publish a lot of his work. And they said, um, so he's been on the hook for a book called Think About Space. And it's, it's a book for young people. It's part of a series we're doing for young people. And he needs some help. Mm-hmm. Would you help him out? I said, sure. And so uh, I think that, I think I said I would, but I wanted to be co-author. I can't remember if Mm -hmm. I proposed that or they proposed it. But anyway, I said, I'd be happy to help. And so uh, again, no internet, all communication by phone and mail. Sure. We agreed I would write the first draft. And then Isaac would come in and do his magic. <laughs> so the point of this story is that he, Isaac Asimov, was incredibly successful, but an incredibly nice person. This is the punchline. But right. anyway, so I wrote the first draft. I sent it to Isaac. 
he got back to Walker and Company and he said, I cannot think of any changes. This is perfect. Whoa. <laughs> he said, furthermore, I don't think I should be co-author. Just call it Think About Space by Frank White. Wow. Walker said, no way, Jose. Uh, you know, we want you... <laughs> We want your name on the book, Isaac. So he said, okay. So he did He did write several things about it, changes he wanted to make. Mm -hmm. um, and he insisted I be the co-author. I think that's how I came to be co-author, is that he insisted on it. Mm -hmm. He didn't have to do that. It could have just been yep. Isaac Asimov, think about space, you would never have heard of me. Uh, that wasn't part of the contract. It was something he insisted on. Did you get to meet him to actually be with him? I did. Uh, not in writing the book, because we did another book together, March of the Millennia. That was the other way around. He had written the first draft and I edited it. And again, he said, look, Frank did a great job on this. He's got to be the co-author again. So it was Isaac Asimov that made me co-author. Huh. So then uh, in the course of that, in writing the SETI factor, I went to, I went to New York to interview him for that. Right. Uh, and I talked to him about, you know, he, he ended up writing this brilliant series about robots. Uh, Caves of Steel, iRobot, mm -hmm. Robots and Empire, Foundation, yep. a lot of things that a lot of people have read, but it's all about robots and humans. An interesting thing about it was that um, he didn't want to write about aliens because the tendency, and this will speak to you, mm -hmm. the tendency at the time was what people wanted was humans fighting aliens. Mm. He said, I didn't want to write about that. Yeah. I didn't want to fall into that genre. So instead of writing about aliens, it was all robots. And yet what's great is he has structured a lot of our thinking about robots. Uh, you know, the three laws of robotics. Yeah. People think those are real. <laughs> But oh, they do. Absolutely. They do. <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, my message about Isaac Asimov is, and I, I've tried to learn this lesson, you know, he could have, he could have just used my skills to forward his own reputation. And he didn't, he was ethical about it. And he, he kind of lifted up this junior writer and I've always been grateful to him for that. What an honor. I mean, and that's, you know, it, it's, you know, I talked earlier about your arrogance and it's often easy to assume that somebody of that level of recognition would have arrogance, but you know, you and I had talked about this in our previous conversation that, it has been my experience that the more genuinely successful, deeply fulfilled a person is, the more genuinely generous they are. 
it never ceases to amaze me. And it, the, 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 it's, 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 the people at the bottom are very generous. The people at the very top are very generous. And it's all these people scrambling in the middle who are trying to hoard shit. And it doesn't work. And people at the bottom realize it like, oh, okay, well, I haven't got much, but you might as well have some. You know, yeah, right. villages in the middle of nowhere and they've shared their fish with me, you know. And at the top end, you know, it's like, you know, you know, somebody who charges $20,000 an hour. It's like, sure, let's sit down. Let's have a cup of coffee. Let's talk. Let's like totally generous. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I, um, I've really tried to share that message about Isaac. I don't, I don't think he has a reputation of not being that way, but I, I had that honor of getting to know him. And, you know, a lot of people are far more impressed that I co-authored two books with him than that I wrote my own books. <laughs> <laughs> and so the halo effect of Asimov is more powerful than the overview effect. So it it's the Asimov effect. The Asimov effect, yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so as we get close to the end of the show, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, you mentioned earlier that is important for us to understand because we can't, at this point in our history, we can't all jump on a, on, a, on a spaceship and take a look back at the Earth. But you talked about VR. So talk to us about VR and the importance of VR and where we're going with that. Hmm. It was so clear to me when I was writing the overview effect that this experience was positive and it was enlightening and it was uh, awe-inspiring. It's just so obvious. Wouldn't it be great if more people could have it? Sure. That was at a time when nobody was paying a lot of attention to that experience. So stating that was, was kind of a big deal. And I also saw immediately that while it would be great to go into orbit and really have the experience, seven billion people aren't going to do that. No. But virtual reality, uh, simulation, whatever you want to call it. Today, as opposed to when I was writing the book, we do have pretty powerful virtual, rea virtual reality tools. Mm -hmm. and we now have people around the world who have had the same insight, which is, wow, can I give people this experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I was contacted very early on by a young man named Ryan Holmes uh, with a company called Space VR. He's working on it. He's actually putting people in flotation tanks. You know, the- uh, Oh yeah, Samadhi tanks. Yeah. 800 pounds of Epsom salts and you float. Yeah, and, and the change is he's putting them in the tanks and then putting the VR headset on and showing them imagery of the Earth from space. So he's working in this direction. Yeah, that's a very cool idea. Uh, uh, there's a, a young man named Jeremy Nickel, and Jeremy is the son of one of my oldest friends. And he tells me that he remembers sitting in the living room of his father's home and hearing his dad and me talk about the overview effect. And he is now a minister and his ministry is all in virtual reality. Wow. 
And he does many, many things online, but one of the things he does is uh, an overview effect meditation. Very cool. You go into this VR space and Jeremy takes you up, up, up through the clouds up until you're in orbit and there's this huge earth that's turning while you're there. And you're there with all these other avatars mm -hmm. and you know, you're kind of experiencing the overview of that. So, you know, I've done that and I yeah. recommend it to everybody. Oh really? It's great. It's really good. The first mm -hmm. time I did it, I thought, wow, this is what the astronauts were telling me. It was a real shift from hearing about it to, having a version of the experience myself. Yeah, there's so much more advancements. I mean, um, my, we had some uh, relatives who came over to visit us and we took them to something called Flight Over Canada. Okay. Which is literally four minutes walk from me from where I live uh, at, at the convention center. And it's this uh, supposedly 4D experience and I mm -hmm. thought this is going to be lame. Like yeah. I'm, I'm be honest. I mean, I thought this is going to be lame. And I'm mean, now with my my eldest granddaughter, who's now ten, and we're, you know, we're in there with these other two kids, and my wife and I and my granddaughter, and we're sitting there. And you, you go in and you sit down, you put your safety belt on, and I'm like, okay, this is lame. Whatever, you know, there's a screen in front of me. Whatever. And then suddenly the floor drops away. <laughs> I appear to be flying through the air. Yeah. And as I come over the, the, the top of the mountain where the helicopter is spinning the snow, there is spray coming on my face. I mean, and it was like 15 minutes of, wow, <laughs> you know, wow. So from, to have that effect you're talking about, whether that's in, in a Samadhi tank with 800 pounds of Epsom salts or whether it's, you know, the VR full-blown, you know, the the – overview meditation I, I i'm definitely in favor of anything that makes us recognize that that bigger connection before we finish i want to ask you what is your what is your favorite because i'm sure you have one or probably have many but what is your favorite story that you got back your favorite interview of all the 41 <laughs> astronauts and you've probably been asked that so many times that's like asking which of your children is most <laughs> your most favorite child. But well, and, and we all know we all have one. We just, yeah, I know, <laughs> I know, but you can't say that, but it would obviously be Edgar Mitchell. Yeah. Um, first of all, Edgar, uh, <coughs> going back to curiosity, Edgar was a curious person. Absolutely. Uh, throughout his life. Edgar um, was one of those people who was very accomplished, very impressive, and yet really nice to me. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he was in Florida and I was in Boston and we had a blizzard. And the question was, could I get to Florida to do the interview? Mm -hmm. And he was so patient, you know, I kept calling him, oh, I don't know, maybe I can't make it. Oh, it's okay, I'm here. Whenever you get here, it's fine. I got there, 
he invited me into his beautiful home, made some dinner for me, made some food for me. Um, and we did the interview. And uh, of all of all the astronauts up until that time, and maybe all of the astronauts, Edgar was one of those who did step away and tried to conceptualize what happened to me mm -hmm. and tried to create a new conceptual worldview to explain it. Right. His book, Way of the Explorer, I recommend to everyone because fantastic book. It's not just this is what happened, but this is my mindset as it happened. Um, and then you know, from that day on, he was just a complete supporter of everything I did, uh, including being a founding member of the Overview Institute and uh, doing the Overview film, which mm. you know, is a very powerful film. But the one thing I recall, one of the many things he said to me was, what have you learned? You know, you've interviewed seven or eight people now. What have you learned? I said, I thought the experience would be the same for everyone. But it's very different. Mm. You know, it's a very different experience for everyone. And he said, I would challenge you on that. The experience is the same. It's the interpretation that varies. And he went into quite a long explanation of how that reflects the history of the person, the worldview, the training. And I've repeated that over and over again. You know, the experience is the same, but each person brings their own filters to it. Absolutely. We're all looking at the world through our own lenses. Yeah. So, you know, Edgar's another hero of mine. And as you know, um, when people ask, tell me about an astronaut who was really different when he came back or what did they do when they came back? And he founded the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which is an organization I admire greatly. And it is an incredible tribute to him, uh, what they're doing. Oh yeah. Today. They are incidentally working in virtual reality as well to, really? yeah, to reproduce this experience. So, you know, it's hard to choose any one interview, but I guess it has to go to Edgar. Yeah, when I met Edgar, um, when I joined Noetic Sciences and I met him, there were two things that really, well, three things actually that stood out for me. The first was a personal one, which was, I couldn't believe he smoked. It seemed <laughs> bizarre. Because uh -huh. in my brain, it's not the truth. <laughs> I had this, this um, bias that said, you know, astronauts are super clean living. And, you know, I know, I now know that's not true. I understand that now. Uh, but it was outside of a cigarette. I'm like, really? <laughs> that was number one. Number two was I was surprised at his height. Because in my brain, again, movies, I thought astronauts were all tall, and they're not. Yeah. <laughs> they tend to not be tall, which I now understand. Um, but thirdly was this wonderful um, collaboration of his thinking. And what I mean by that is that 
he, as you said, deeply curious, which to me is, is at my heart, deeply curious um, and scientific, but at the same time, totally open to anything that we scientifically might think of as woo woo. Right. Right. You know, so he, he, and that's what I loved about the, That's why I was pulled to noetic sciences was that this was this combination of consciousness and science. Consciousness had been this woo-woo, fairy, you know, whatever sort of subject. And science had been the hard logic. And the Institute of Noetic Sciences, him and all the people who were involved in it at that time, this was uh, in the 90s for me um, when he first started it. And it was like, I loved that that was coming together in the early 2000s. It was like, this is so awesome. And, and I... And I love that he, there was no uh, dismissing on either side. Yeah. You know, I, I just thought, yeah. th like this, if that's the overview effect on him, which I think it was, yeah. um, that is the leap that we all need. The yeah. leap to go, this was my reality, and now it's shattered. And right. something new has evolved. And in many ways, you know, you and I just started out on this. When I met uh, Edgar Mitchell, he, in some strange ways, personified this hero's, hero's journey. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the battle he'd had with himself around what, is, what am I experiencing and what is it and what do I think it was and what is it really? And, you know, so it's an interesting loop that we've done here in in Camelot and, and the hero's journey and space travel and these astronauts and the overview effect. And even as you described it, you know, the, um, the Kennedy idea of the Camelot. And it, it's fascinating to me that you got that insight because when you talked about your insight um, and you talked about the Holy Grail and, and the chalice and, and I immediately in my mind flashed this image that I've seen and maybe it was on one strange rock the documentary series but i saw the image of the earth and of course part of it is always in shadow and so it looked like it was <laughs> you can imagine this invisible black cup holding yeah. the earth in it so as if the earth is sitting in the in in the holy grail yeah i like that image i really do um, me too and it just you know you 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 spawned that when you talked about it that way it was like Oh yeah, I can totally see that. That's beautiful. Also imagine that we're on a quest, you know, and curiosity is driving it. Exploration is driving it. We don't know all the answers. It wouldn't be very interesting if we did, but uh, you know, when you asked me at the beginning, what am I curious about? I'm curious about where the quest will lead. Yeah, me too. That's a great place for us to finish. Frank, before we finish, please, 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 please tell our viewers and our listeners where they can find out more about you, about the overview effect, about, because there's so many things you're involved in, I won't even go after them. Tell, you can tell us about as any number of them that you want. Okay. Well, I think uh, I have a website, frankwhiteauthor.com. And uh, that's a good place to go. Sure. I've got a lot of information there. 
Also, I've been involved uh, with two colleagues, uh, Dylan Taylor and Rick Tumlinson, uh, in creating a website called 2211.world. Uh, if you look it up, we're trying to imagine the world in 2211 and trying to develop a new space philosophy. There's a lot of information there. Uh, and um, of course, there's a website for the Overview Institute, which has quite a lot of information. The other organization I didn't get to mention that's a favorite of mine is Space for Humanity. Mm -hmm. So Space for Humanity is offering a, an opportunity for people to compete to actually have a, a trip into orbit and then come back and use their experience to make the world a better place. So I would definitely direct people to the Space for Humanity website. Mm -hmm. That organization is having a huge impact and uh, quite a few people have signed up to try to get this free ride. Yeah, I think Jared and I might be competing for each, with each other for that. One. <laughs> <laughs> you should give us you you should give it a shot. Exactly. I'm sure I've left out people and organizations and websites that I should be mentioning, but those are a pretty good start. And also, look for the overview film. That's yeah. the name of it on Vimeo, and look for Down to Earth on YouTube. Great, great examples of the, the experience. Well, we will definitely make sure that we post all of those links in the show notes so that people can find out. And we'll, we'll actually have them there in all four episodes, so they'll be there for you. Um, Frank, this was a pleasure and an honor. I really want to thank you for being with us. Uh, learned so much, exciting conversation. Uh, I really appreciate you taking all this time to be with us and share all the things that have been shared with you and all the things that you've shared with the world. And, and, and I really do hope that we in this conversation have created even more curiosity, not just about space and space travel, but, but our, our connection to the universe, um, the physical universe and the mental consciousness universe. So again, thank you, sir. It has been a pleasure and an honor. I'm deeply, deeply grateful. And for you, dear listener, remember you can join this conversation inside of our group on Facebook. We have a Curiosity Bites group on Facebook. You can go there. If you're listening to this for the first time, you can also subscribe to the show um, by going to dovebaron.com and you'll find out more about there. If you want to find out more about me, Dove Baron, as a strategist for yourself or for your organization, Simply go to dovebaron.com. Listen, it's been a pleasure and honor serving you, and I hope that you will take this and stay curious, my friend. Stay curious about your place in the universe, how small and how big it is, both ends of that spectrum. This is Dov Baron for Curiosity Bites. I'm out.